Welcome to the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. I have a rip-off alert for you straight ahead. Our websites are clark.com and clarkdeals.com. And we need to have a serious talk. And I'm going to repeat this again uh, about six months from now that you be very well aware of it. There was a decision made by the U.S. Department of Labor that was so egregious, so mean-spirited, at the very least, stupid beyond imagination. And I need to make you solidly aware of a change that may be coming to the 401k plan, if you are lucky enough to have one at your employer, a change that may be coming. This is shocking. It is something either out of naivete or corruption that the U.S. Department of Labor is now allowing 401k plans to offer access to you investing in private equity. This is just absolutely just so out of place and so inappropriate for a workaday person saving money in a 401k to have promoted in that 401k that instead of you going into the routinized choices of going into target retirement fund or something like that, that or regular mutual fund or index fund, that kind of stuff, now being offered, putting money into things that are designed for the very wealthiest and most sophisticated of us who go into an investment. Many times it's it's a dark investment. What that means is you don't even know what will be done with your money. You also have massive, massive fees that you have to pay. Now, the irony of that is 401ks have been getting lower and lower and lower cost. And this is caused a lot of upset in the industry is the moves by Vanguard, the dominant player in the investment community in the United States, is their influence with their lower and lower cost funds has forced others to play by their rules. The industry was able to con or who knows how get the U.S. Department of Labor to say, hey, Things are getting better for investors, so let's mess them up as much as we possibly can by giving 401k plan administrators the ability to not only offer, but tout you going into private equity garbage. So I will explain this in greater detail when open enrollment occurs again much later this year, but I want you to know the announcements that will come later this year about great news for your 401k new improved choices for you know that so often is with any consumer product when you see new and improved take it with a grain of salt these changes coming to 401ks are as bad a thing as i've seen in a long 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 time there is no upside. There is no case to be made that this was a good idea. And I hope that I know a lot of employers take hands off 
from what their 401k administrators do. I want you, if you are an employer involved in the decision-making on employee benefits, to know that you may face a meeting with your 401k administrator trying to con you into adding as a choice to your 401k this private equity garbage and just remember that and say thanks we're happy having these simple low-cost choices for our employees and we don't want to add this to our plan so enough said for now but I cannot imagine cannot imagine that there was ever any even remote possibility that there was any reasonable justification for this other than typical Washington dirty dealing. It's time for your questions, and producers Kim and Joel are at bat. And producer Kim, who do you have a question from from Clark.com slash ask? This is from Jeremy in Ohio. Jeremy says, I'm an emergency medicine physician, and I'm part of a small Democratic ER group. We max out our 401k retirement plans, and I receive a W-2 for this work. During the pandemic, I've started doing telemedicine consults on the side. This is independent contractor work, and I will be receiving a 1099. I'm hoping to use this extra income as an avenue to save more for retirement. I'll be making a max of about $26,000 on this side job. Does this allow me to open up a SEP IRA or a solo 401k? And if so, which is better? So without doubt, you are eligible to do so. Uh, Particularly the SEP is a no-brainer. It's really, really easy. You'll be able to shelter potentially about a quarter of that or about, uh, I guess, about 6,500 based on what you said. And the solo or self-employed 401k is a little more complicated, but I'd say if you are routinely for years to come going to have side 1099 income, look at the solo 401k or self-employed 401k is maybe your first choice. If it's unclear if this will be erratic, certain years you might, other years you might not have this side income, then I would keep it simple and do the SEP, the, the Simplified Employee Pension, because the SEP requires uh, about, oh, maybe 90 seconds of paperwork, and the money essentially becomes uh, your own personal IRA almost immediately. The organizations that offer SEPs also offer self-employed or solo 401ks. They're both widespread now, so you can look at each of them and see which one seems better for your needs and which might allow you to pop aside more money in a year to put aside. But again, the dividing line I'd start with is if you're going to routinely have side income year after year after year, then look at both. If this is going to be an irregular thing, then do the SEP. Joel? Clark Sandra in Tennessee says, what is the difference between whole life insurance and term life insurance? I'm so confused by it. So Sandra, thank you for your question because this is how it works. Whole life is a life insurance policy for a set amount of coverage that also comes with a savings account. So the money builds up what's known as a cash value 
and at the same time that cash value is available to you down the road to make loans against the policy or even to cash out the policy for the face amount so it's not just about a death benefit for your survivors a term life insurance policy could also be referred to as a death policy that it only pays to your designated beneficiaries at the time of your death and you have to die at the within the term of the policy the 10 to 30 years of the policy if you live beyond that be happy because you may not have any value of a policy for somebody to get but you outlived it which is much better with a whole life policy it is what insurance agents also refer to as permanent meaning that it doesn't expire at the end of uh, you know a 10 to 30 year period but the difference is a whole life policy costs many 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 times more in premium dollars for the amount of coverage bought and most people can't buy enough meaningful coverage in a whole life policy really only the wealthiest of, among us people who make above 400,000 a year should be looking at whole life policies the rest of us should be looking at term insurance where you buy it for the level term for a period of time again of 10 to 30 years kim peggy in missouri says we're thinking about putting our house up for sale is this a good time and thank you in most of the country the housing market has a shortage of inventory for sale and a surplus of buyers looking to buy homes and real estate has a real local flavor to it so that's a broad brush i just painted with so that's a general trend around the country uh, people are especially interested in buying homes right now with what may be the lowest mortgage rates ever offered going on right now so that has motivated people to push forward with buying a property maybe sooner than they would have so it is in much of the country a seller's market right now and so it would be a time for you to consider putting your home on the market you can get a number of agents to come in and quote you on what they feel the conditions in the marketplace are and what they think is a reasonable listing price for your home and then make a decision whether you're ready to go forward with selling joel clark chris in georgia says every so often i get these flyers in the mail advertising huge land sale events with three acre lots that have river access prices from <laughs> nine thousand dollars up to seventy thousand dollars for the lot Boy. in the log cabin my question is are these ads legit or are they a scam so isn't it interesting how what's old becomes new again because as kim joel and i remember so well 2012 to 2015 we had people getting many of these in their mailboxes every week um, now they've come back but in much smaller number of marketing uh, events going on as we had uh, five to eight years ago but when you buy uh, raw land at a place like a lake a river uh, a mountain area whatever you are taking a significantly high risk because you may end up with an obligation where you're paying to potentially to an association 
for their costs. You are uh, facing property taxes over the years, and you may not ever develop that property. And then that property, as an individual, may be tough for you to sell later. So I have a big bias in looking at a place like a mountain, a lake, along a river, whatever, is that if you are interested in buying, you buy a place that's already built, that already has a house on it, a cabin, whatever, so that you're not just buying an obligation, you're buying a place that you can actually start enjoying immediately. And as for the values that these circulars say, where they say, land being sold 80% off, 90% off, whatever. So the thing is, land is worth whatever it's worth at that moment. So it's actually nothing off, and they're telling you what they think it's worth, but there is no magic in this. Know that uh, land in vacation spots is generally a much tougher sell than land where people have a primary home. Kim? John in North Carolina says, my wife is going back to school to get her master's degree. We're going to pay for it from our household cash flow. However, we were wondering, are there any advantages to opening up a 529 for her and running her school tuition payments through it? The only possibility is if your state offers a tax benefit for contributions to 529 accounts. So you can check at, um, go to our guide on 529 plans at clark.com. Click on the plan I recommend for your state. And then it will tell you whether or not there's a state tax deduction or credit of some kind for contributions to a 401k. If there is a credit or deduction available that you're eligible for on your income tax, then yes, you want to contribute at least up to the amount that qualifies you for that deduction or credit, and that will get you a benefit. If there is not one, then don't bother with a 529. Just pay it as you were intending to for the tuition. Jason joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Jason. How's it going, Clark? How are you? Great. Thank you, Jason. Hope you're well. I'm doing great. Perfect. Um, just had a quick question about some savings. Um, I'm self-employed, so I don't have like an employer-matched 401k. So currently doing the Roth IRA, and then just wondering if I should just fund my own 401k, or if because I'm not getting the match, there's potentially something better. How many employees do you have? Uh, well, I don't have any employees. I just work for myself. Fantastic. So it's just me. Just me. Fantastic. Yeah. You have access to an obscure but very good option that gives you a lot of flexibility known as either a solo 401k or a self-employed 401k. And where with the Roth, you're tightly limited on how much you can contribute. With the solo or self-employed 401k, you can contribute roughly three times what you can contribute to a Roth IRA. Uh, Very cool. And all the all the big low cost companies you hear me talk about, yeah, offer um, solo or self employed four hundred one ks. And you're going to have to Perfect. talk to a retirement specialist because people who just work at the low costs or really any firm 
aren't going to be knowledgeable about the ins and outs of a self-employed or solo 401k. So you got to get to somebody who is trained in this area. And it, the typical firms, they'll refer to that as a retirement specialist. Sounds perfect. Excited to look into that. All right. And also you'll have, with most of the firms, you'll have two choices. You'll be able to do a traditional 401k or a Roth 401k. And based on your earnings and what you're trying to accomplish, you'll have to make the decision which you want to do. Sounds good. All right. And best of luck to you with your future and with running your own business. And I hope you're able to stash away a lot of money for your long term. Glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to keep more of what you have. What if it's about trying to increase what you make? It's an area that is, as the organizational development specialist will tell you, it's a great dissatisfier in the workplace, not a satisfier what people make, meaning that the whole issue of pay tends to make people unhappy, not happy. And I'll tell you where people can really get alienated from a place of work and actually can lead to lower productivity, potentially somebody leaving a place of work, is when they get up the guts to go ask for a raise and then they get turned down flat. And you may think I'm Looney Tunes talking about in the midst of the very high unemployment we have right now because of coronavirus, talking about people getting raises when we've talked just recently about people being asked to take pay cuts, people facing layoffs and all that. But the reality is we have a very widely diversified economy and a lot of people are working for companies that are doing just fine in this era. And there's a sliver of companies that are having their best profits ever and best sales ever during coronavirus. And it's always like that with an economy. Even when the general trend line is down, there are organizations that are doing just fine. And so you may be thinking, hey, they're doing great here, but I think I deserve more money. I think I have real value here. And so often we end up going to the boss and asking for a raise and even if the boss feels like we deserve more says well you know we're only allowed to do 1.6 percent here or whatever i mean there's a real issue in so many places of work where the boss who you go to to ask for a raise is not in a position to do it. They don't have the juice. They aren't given the authority in the organization that you work in to actually differentiate uh, with a high achiever, let's say, or somebody whose skills are valuable elsewhere and not given more money may pick up and leave. I mean, that is a real issue. I, I saw an item in the Wall Street Journal about that fact that you know you've got to really have a real understanding of the culture where you work if you go to a boss to ask for a raise 
is he or she even in a position to negotiate something with you? Or are they, in the proverbial phrase, hands tied? That they are not able to because a company, a lot of times companies will say, oh, this year's raised ceiling is 1.44% or 2.6% or whatever. And no matter how valuable you are to that company, that's all they're going to be able to give you. Now, I'll tell you, there's something that I've learned over the years, and that is the best way for you to, number one, advance in an organization, and number two, to get more pay, is to pitch how you can solve a problem for the company. The company is not interested in what solves a problem for you. They and those above you in the organization are interested in how you solve a problem for them or the organization. So the people who, in a time where companies are bureaucratic and say, well, we could only give blah, blah, blah money, or we're under a wage freeze, whatever, it's all about creating the conditions for you to get promoted, for you to be able to, to have a different job in the organization and one that would, in turn, have a higher pay level in that organization. You also may find that through the process of really thinking that through and coming up with your strategy to ask for a raise, you may realize that where you work, it's not going to happen. That it may be the signal that you need to get you out of your, um, get you out of that situation you're in where you don't look outside because many times the only path to really move forward in a career is to go somewhere else and if your only negotiation is with the place you're working you're doing what's called negotiating with yourself so think about it if you feel you're underappreciated and underpaid and there is no circumstance where you can see that improving where you are, that's when you may need to get out there and look around. You may not find the grass is greener elsewhere, but you owe it to yourself to at least see what is out there. And producers Kim and Joel are asking your questions that you posted at clark.com ask. Who's next? All right, Clark, that's me. And Peter in Connecticut says, what's your opinion of Stash Invest? Stash is like a number of other apps on your phone that allows you to micro-invest, where you can take very small amounts of money that you add automatically, can be just from the change from your purchases, can be money that you add on a regular basis. And these apps really had a lone wolf kind of place in the marketplace of saving and investing for a number of years that they don't enjoy anymore. With the Stash app, you pay, if I remember right, $1 to $9 a month. The cheapest plan is 12 bucks a year. The most expensive is 108 a year. And most people end up in a plan that costs 36 bucks a year to be able to use the app. And if the convenience of it is really great and you find that it gets you to put money aside you wouldn't otherwise, then 
I would guess it's worth it paying the money to the Stash app or any of its competitors to get you saving and investing. But if you don't need the app to discipline you to put money aside, you now have the ability to trade so many places for free and invest for free with no minimums. This is a marketplace that really came alive with Robinhood and now has been matched by the universe of discount stockbrokers that now offer no minimums with free trading. So the purpose of using the Stash app is to get you to save so you have the money to invest. But if the saving part is something you can do, then I would say don't use Stash or its competitors. Use a freebie instead. Kim? Carol in Florida wants to know how to safely apply for a contact tracing job. So that is a great question because the contact tracing around the country in most states is behind schedule. And if you're not familiar with the standard public health protocol, you test, you trace, you isolate. And that's how you disease manage when you face um, an outbreak of something, in our case, the coronavirus pandemic. So there's a big need for people to fill jobs as coronavirus tracers. And we have found one source you can go to that we find to be reputable called Contrace, C-O-N-T-R-A-C-E dot org, which provides you the ability to see uh, what process you go through in different jurisdictions to apply for a job as a contact tracer. And this is being a little bit of a detective, being a contact tracer. And the idea is to limit an outbreak of disease in an area by quickly contacting people that someone who's tested positive has been in contact with. And as I've mentioned before, the Apple-Google Alliance automates this, but Americans in very large numbers, are not comfortable participating in the Apple-Google Alliance for automatic uh, communication to people that they've been in contact with somebody who has tested positive for coronavirus. So what we're doing instead is this high-touch thing of having contact tracers. Joel? Clark David in Georgia says, what do you think about extended warranties on new vehicles that have all updated technology and safety features on them? Do you think it's a wise purchase if you intend to keep the vehicle for a long time? Wonderful question. And vehicles are becoming rolling computers. And if a computer module goes out, the cost of replacing it on a vehicle is way beyond the cost of that as a standalone component that we have not gotten to plug and play with cars like we are with computing technology today. So it can be very, very costly um, to replace an individual component when it goes out. Having said that, most of these components are extremely reliable and will outlive the vehicle. So you got to be really unlucky to have one of these components die. But one thing you should not do is buy an extended warranty at the time you buy a new vehicle. Let the clock run on ownership. You'll have a period later 
in ownership before you're, you've run out of miles and years on the manufacturer's warranty, depending on your manufacturer, that's three to five years typically. And at that later date, you can buy one if you do wish to buy an extension, but buy the manufacturer's own. Don't buy what's known as a white label product, one that's being touted by a dealership that is not backed by your auto manufacturer itself. Um, the math says if you took the few thousand dollars that you would pay for an extension of a warranty and put it in a vehicle repair fund, that over the years you would be far ahead doing that than you would be buying that manufacturer's extension of a warranty, though. Kim? Nancy in California says, for budgeting reasons, I prefer to avoid the use of credit cards for everyday purchases. For years now, my credit union has issued me an ATM debit card with the debit feature essentially turned off, meaning that I always needed to put in a pin. It didn't work at restaurants, but was great for groceries, etc. Fast forward, and now they're no longer able to do that due to changes in their system. I was horrified recently when I was at a merchant and they accidentally hit the credit to run it through and it didn't require a pin. Now I'm having visions of my checking account being empty if my card was ever lost or stolen. What should I do? Open a second account that you tie into the debit card. So what a lot of people will do is either with the credit union open a separate account that you tie in with the debit card so that your main expenses, the money you have to have for rent or mortgage or car payment, the big money that you spend in your life is tied into one account and then the money you spend on day-to-day out and about is tied into a separate account. Other people will open an online account to do the same thing. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Ginger joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Ginger. Hi, how are you? Great, thank you, Ginger. You got a question about your teenager. I do. I hear you talking about uh, adding teenagers as authorized users on credit cards. And my son will be graduating this year, and I was wondering how long they have to be as authorized user on a credit card in order for it to help their future credit score. You're going to find that the benefit will appear usually within 30 to 60 days. Okay. And your good credit, and by the way, somebody asked me this question recently, so I want to emphasize, only people who have good credit should add uh, one of their children as an authorized user. Right. Because 
their credit will marry uh, will mirror yours. So if you add your teen to your card as an authorized user, especially you want to report the teen's social security number. Because okay. sometimes they'll give you the choice for authorized user of just giving their name or giving their name and social security. You always want to add the social security because that's what's key to triggering it being reported on a credit file. Okay. And then uh, shortly after, once once the authorized user status is showing up, it will generate a credit history for your teen. And then you said he? He. He, mm-hmm. he will be able to apply, if he's going off to college, he'll be able to apply for a college student credit card. Is he going into the workforce or to college? Well, I actually have two. One is graduating high school in another year, but then I also have a college student that's graduating this year. Oh, from college. Okay. Right. Very important. I misspoke. Very important. (laughs) The college. (laughs) Oh, no, I'm the one that got confused. You probably said it all just right, and I didn't listen well. Well, I refer to him as a teen. He's not a teen anymore. He's a young man. <laughs> okay, so so your young man who's going to graduate from college soon, it is mm-hmm. extremely important that he get credit before he graduates because it's okay. much harder to get credit after college graduation. And so as soon as you add your uh, college senior as an authorized user, two months later, he should be applying for a college student credit card. And all the major issuers and a lot of credit unions offer college student programs that don't require income from a job, just that they verified identity and they'll issue a student card because student credit card users tend to be the highest profit center for any credit card company. Okay. You can also make the high schooler an authorized user. In neither case do you have to give them the plastic. And then when the high schooler gets to college, we'll already have an established credit identity, and the high schooler will be able to get a card once entering college, get a student credit card. And then, uh, especially the one who's in college, getting established with cards in his own name will make a huge difference Um, And being able to establish credit, be able to sign an apartment lease, that kind of thing, once he's out of school. Right. And I've run into that with some older siblings that don't have any credit after they've graduated. So, Yeah. And so this is is a process. Some people consider this um, controversial or unethical to lend your credit to one of your kids so they can establish their own credit. But I don't look at it that way. I look at it, this is how the system works. You're in a position to be able to help your kids establish credit, and that this is how you make it happen. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.